Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today, we marvel at Brexit as Parliament goes pro-rogue and Boris Johnson tells the EU, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Will he be the Brexiters smash-and-grab hero, or is he a barely credible hulk? And from robo-debt to random drug testing, we ask where the rotters are, on social welfare or in Parliament. That's this week's Democracy Sausage. Thanks for joining us here on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, and I'm delighted to say welcome back after a period of being away to Dr. Maria Tafliger, my colleague from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Hello, everyone. Great to have you back, Maria. You've uh, been abroad doing exciting things. Yes, it's conference season, so so I've I've actually been to to two different continents, and it's not good for my carbon footprint, that's for sure. <laughs> I've been to the US um, for the American Political Science Association, which was in Washington, and then I went over to Poland for the European Political Research Consortium's annual conference in the lovely Wroclaw. You went to Poland, unlike the US president, who was going to go there, but then he cancelled that trip, didn't he? That's right, actually. And I was in Warsaw on the same uh, day that he was supposed to be there. And Macron did show up, but um, but, uh, Trump didn't. Yes. Yes. Well, the relationship between the the French and the Poles has always been quite strong. But uh, I think Trump's logic was that uh, I think it was Hurricane Dorian or whatever it's called was was bearing down. But then... While he was supposed to be at home coordinating the response to that, I saw pictures of him playing golf. Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> On one of his it, was, it was a really important golf meeting. Um, but no, what was actually kind of interesting was that there was some discussion about um, Poland trying to get the US to put 5,000 more troops in Poland. And in exchange for that, they would be happy to call the fortress Fort Trump. Yes, yeah, yes, so, right. so perhaps they also understand his psychology to to a degree. I think they do. Yes, I read about that in the Economist a while ago, and I just I literally couldn't believe that story. But uh, yes, it still goes on, and I think you're right. They are playing to that man's uh, rather legendary ego, or, the... or, or as Scaramucci said, you know, his former 11 day press secretary, the That's man right. with the with a, with a huge self esteem problem. That's why he's such a bully. He said, "Interesting idea." Um, also with us today are uh, two other guests here in the Crawford studio. Anne McNaughton is a senior lecturer at the ANU's College of Law and she's taken a particular research interest in the European Union as a unique legal and supranational construct. Uh, great to have you along, Anne. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Morning, everybody. Obviously, when we think about European Union, we, we can't think about it for more than a nanosecond before we're talking about Brexit. So I guess that's what we're going to come to uh, shortly. Inevitably, Absolutely. And also with us is May Azizi, Director of Media and Communications at Anglicare. May, you've been in the uh, Democracy Sausage pod before, so welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And now let's do that. Let's get into this whole Brexit thing um, because it just seems and to be uh, sort of going on, I guess, for those of us who are captivated by it. You know, we see all these events, we see it sort of, I guess, characterized by a succession of really quite extraordinary events. And yet at the same time, underneath kind of nothing happening. It's just been going on for so long. Yeah, it's quite mesmerising really. And um, I was reading a piece at the weekend that the poor unfortunates who do um, sort of satire and surrealist sort of uh, comedy are a bit hard-pressed because you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, I think if they tried to produce this for Utopia or something, no one would accept it. Um, And as we were talking a little bit earlier, if following the referendum and following the negotiation of that withdrawal agreement that Theresa May negotiated, if the UK Parliament had actually signed that and accepted it and they had entered into that and then proceeded to negotiate the future relationship between the EU and the UK, that's about where we would be now because the transition period, the withdrawal agreement, was only ever intended to be to transition out of the EU and to have an orderly arrangement with the EU 
while the UK and the EU negotiated a future relationship. Now, all this stasis, paralysis that's been going on in the interim has been pushing this out further and further. Um, And I'm at the stage now, I mean, early on with some confidence, I was, oh, no, I'm sure it will be this. And no, Mm. there's no deal and that's on the table, but that will be not countenanced. It will be, you know, there'll be some deal negotiated. I'm just beyond trying to guess anymore what's happening. It's completely unpredictable. It's a full-blown political crisis. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's, it's about it's to teeter into political. a constitutional mm. crisis, potentially. If, well, I think if it's been that. a constitutional crisis for a while now. I think it's been a constitutional crisis in the, well, maybe not necessarily a crisis, but I think for the first time, the UK population has come to learn what it really means to have an unwritten constitution, to have a constitution based on conventions. Well, yeah, you're right, because, I mean, the core question really is where does sovereignty lie, right? And um, I guess that's what's really interesting about these court cases that have come before the courts is because they're actually sort of starting to kind of really push this issue. Um, And if the Boris Johnson government doesn't actually want to adhere to these rulings or to um, adhere to the rulings of parliament to basically block their um, their chance to withdrawal, that does really raise the question of who governs, right, in, in the UK. Well, that, that, I think that's been one of the most fascinating things about this is that we've, and like if you actually transpose some of these details into Australia, you definitely would call it a constitutional crisis. I mean, the idea that the parliament has assumed the role of the executive as has been the case here, really, with effectively the, the the prime minister has lost control of the house. He's had six votes. He's lost them all. Yeah. He hasn't been able to call an election. He hasn't been able to proceed with his no deal plans. He's been rebuffed at every turn. A group of uh, sort of independents and opposition, or you know, smaller parties, are now meeting every Monday in Jeremy Corbyn's office. Katie Balls was writing about this in the Spectator. Um, and they, they discuss tactics. You know, they, they are kind of competitors when the election comes, but until now they're united by their opposition to, you know, the Tory government. And they meet and discuss tactics and that coordination is what's probably led to this extraordinary situation where the government of the day does not have control of, uh, you know, key executive functions. That Yeah, that that's true. And I, it seems to be the tension there between, as you've been saying, whether it's the executive or whether it's parliament that represents the people and this this oh, live question of sovereignty um, playing out. But then also because Boris Johnson has been saying, you know, he'll die in a ditch rather than ask for an extension, all of these things which suggest that he would refuse to comply with whatever the law was and I use well, that and term we know what broadly. the law well we know what the law is because a law has been passed that has taken no deal off the table well no it hasn't mark it hasn't taken it can't take no deal off the table the current state of the law is that come the 31st of October because they activated article 50 and they have no agreement in place pursuant to which they manage the withdrawal process then on the 31st of October, they leave without a deal, and that's under English law or UK law as things stand at the minute. What the piece of legislation that's just been passed has done has to com- has been to try and compel the Prime Minister to go back to Brussels in the event that they don't have this withdrawal agreement. By to the go, 19th. But yes. yeah, go back and ask for an extension. Now, if he either goes back and asks for an extension, which he's refusing to do, he, well, which, he which, which I think we should do. just say, I mean, the Parliament's been very prescriptive here. The actual letter itself yep. has been has been, been drafted, drafted for him. and and yeah. been written into this new law, yeah. which has been signed off by the Queen. Yeah. So there is a legal obligation on the Prime Minister Absolutely. to seek an extension. I Absolutely. agree. There's no obligation on Europe to grant said extension, which is. But Boris Johnson is saying he won't comply with mm. that requirement. Yeah. And now uh, I've, I have read that apparently there is about three advisors who seem to think that there is some way of his not, him not complying with that and still staying within the letter of the law. I've no idea how that would play out. Apparently he can send a, a second letter saying to ignore the, the first. Well, that's certainly <laughs> been the thing that's been more widely yes. published. This and would be the second letter, like the second letter in the Cuban Missile Crisis, yeah, you know, yes. <laughs> just I mean, ignore it. Or, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So so it's, and you do have certain um, politicians like Ian Duncan Smith who 
less said about him, the better. But he's been actively and publicly inciting the Prime Minister to deliberately break the law. Well, on the, rationale that if it's a bad law, depending on what that means by all appearances, it would mean I don't like it, I don't agree with it, so it must be a bad law, but therefore don't comply with it. Now, I've, I find this all actually quite reprehensible. And if we're starting from a position that we, we subscribe to a rules-based legal order, mm-hmm. well, that means that we start from a position of recognising the rules, accepting their legitimacy complying with them, exercising honour, integrity and and truthfulness, and they all seem to be in short supply at the minute, frankly. So I don't know what Boris Johnson is going to do. I personally think he's sufficiently um, self-interested that he will not undertake a course of action that would set him so far apart to look like he was genuinely an outlaw. I think he will always sail very close to the wind. He will do things that have enough support at one level for him to claim some level of legitimacy. Uh, and I simply don't know what's going to happen between now and and the end of October. Well, one of the things that's going to happen, we believe, is that the, the Supreme Court is going to rule on this matter of the Scottish Appeals Court has yeah. ruled. That has, Scottish Appeals Court has said that the Prime Minister in proroguing Parliament for five weeks leading up to Brexit, uh, there will be a, a short sitting period before the end of October, but uh, that this action by the Prime Minister was unlawful because he somehow deceived the sovereign, he deceived the Queen in gaining that prorogation. The Supreme Court's going to decide on that. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary situation. Oh, it is. It's unprecedented. We've got, the, we've got conservatives uh, throwing various conventions up against the wall. We've now got a Prime Minister, conservative Prime Minister, who says that who seems to be openly defying the law regarding the the sovereignty of Parliament in this situation as being, uh, you know, contestable. Something that uh, he's simply going to ignore. And we've got the idea of the court potentially. Well, know. the Scottish court. The no, English, no, we've the got the idea. Courts, of the, 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 the English what, court said that it wasn't really their business. Well, we'll see what the Supreme Court says about indeed, that. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and, and, and that's going to be an interesting one. But I, I guess what I, where I was going is that there's at least the possibility the Prime Minister uh, will be found to be potentially have broken the law yeah, um, yeah. in there's a pretty critical matter. That's constitutional crisis territory. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, if we weren't in <laughs> no there No splitting now, hairs on I, that. No, uh, I agree with Maria in that regard. If we, yeah. if we weren't there then, we're certainly there now. Well, I mean, what we're, we're absolutely seeing is, you know, another um, spectacular episode in um, in Parliament effectively working out some of those bits of the Constitution which are unwritten and which are based on absolutely. convention, right? And I don't think we've really seen a crisis like this since like the sort of Irish home rule problems, right, at the at the turn of the last um, century. But I, I do disagree with you a little bit, uh, Mark, on the on the the question of whether or not it's a problem that the parliament has reasserted itself. And that's because I guess I'm quite cynical about political parties and much more pro-parliament. So so f- for me, I'm I'm quite energized and excited about the fact that legislators are actually doing their job and taking control of the uh, the legislative uh, program and business and acting in what they think is the national interest because, of course, that's sort of how parliament was originally designed until parties came along and sort of and changed all of those um, relationships. So it's not that you're wrong. It's just that, you know, like my, my heart is warmed by this parliamentary reassertion of their rights and, and place. How, Maria, how do you think that I don't disagree with that. But I find it really interesting because you've got you've got this situation where the executive is supposed to have um, the confidence and be representative of the parliament. And so obviously that's not the case and parliament has reasserted itself and that's fair enough. Isn't it then also fair enough for the prime minister to say, well, in that case, we ought to have an election? Yes. Well, because has, I think, to be I think, fair, yeah, yeah. And I, yes, exactly. Yeah. And now parliament is saying, well, you can't have an election. I yes. think that's, I think this is, that's, that's no, the, you're right. the very, it's, the it's, very it's, weird it's, impasse that we're yeah. at where they're saying you don't, you, you know, well, yeah. you, enjoy, you know, you, you don't have the confidence of the parliament, but we're also not going to let you go to, call an, yeah, yeah, just, go to yeah. an election yeah. and, and, and call a mandate. And yeah. I understand the politics of that. I understand the politics of saying that you said you were okay with a no deal Brexit and we're going to make you wear the political consequences of that. But I do think it's a really interesting constitutional question to say we're going to keep you here even though you demonstrably 
yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. It does kind of, um, at least in the spirit, right, violate the principle of responsible government, which is the idea, uh, which is how it works in our system too, which is the idea that essentially that the executive has to uh, be responsible to the legislature, right? And, um, And, you know, realistically, we haven't had like responsible government in this traditional sense for a really long time. We've had responsible party government, right? But I guess the the question of confidence is really like it's quite a technical um, question, right? Like so it's 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 basically a motion that the parliament puts up. And so technically the parliament does maintain confidence in the executive for it to be like a dead body sitting there whilst it does its stuff. And so and and I and and so you know you do raise like an important kind of question and perhaps that will give Boris some leverage about his idea of um you know the people versus uh parliament. But I guess the problem for me with Boris's argument here is that like this parliament was really Elected after the Brexit uh, referenda and after um, after it was pretty clear what the government's direction was going to be, and they basically delivered a hung well, they delivered a hung parliament, and so you know I think that's actually quite an interesting um, well actually that's an overlooked point like because people are always referencing this one referenda which is bearing all of this weight for what is a really complex question, but we have actually had a decision after that you know which sort of does speak to the to the fact that people don't really know, actually. Well, like many sane people, I've long advocated that there ought to have been two. There ought to have been two referendums to begin with on this question, if there was going to be any at all. There ought to have been one that simply asked the question, are you happy mm. for uh, for us to negotiate a withdrawal agreement with the EU? And if you are, and then when that best withdrawal agreement possible could be negotiated, that then goes back for a yay or nay to the people. That is the way it always should have been. Of course, people now argue in this very fundamentalist way that any sort of second vote is a breach of the democratic purity of the first exercise. You know, that that this is just the elites, the sort of fierce, you know, pro-Remain side clubbing together, coming up with a way not to deliver the people's will as expressed in 2016. Mm. Um, So it it, it is a difficult question. But look, I wanted to ask you, and this point, um, and it's a sort of uncomfortable question in the sense for those of us who, you know, fall pretty clearly on the Remain side, but... um, is this paralysis that we've seen over this entire period and all of these various uh, you know, undulations and iterations, all, all the craziness that we've seen, is it all just a function of the fact that the Remain side, which has been very strongly represented in you know, the establishment, in, in, in parliament, in media, um, you know, in, in, in the city, is this just a function of the fact that the Remain side has never accepted the result of the referendum? has never been prepared to to acknowledge that the people voted to leave. Look, there may be an element of that. And the the rationale, because I don't think you can consider either the Remain side or, for that matter, the Brexit, the, the, the Leave side, to be monolithic groupings. You know, And this is, I think, part of the challenge because you've got a cross-section of interests that are pulling in different directions. But in terms of your, your question, definitely there are those who took great comfort from the fact that the, first of all, the margin by which the referendum came down on the side of leave was so small. Secondly, the fact that an awful lot of people clearly and, and admitted that they didn't know what they were doing. When yes, they, it was the antithesis you know, of informed consent. Oh, it? It, was, it was just, yeah, anyway, um, it beggars belief. It really does. It does. And... Uh, certainly those who wanted to stay have been fighting tooth and nail to stay. But you've also got a component of people who want to uh, are prepared to leave but not to leave on the basis of no deal because of the damage that that will do given the extent to which the EU, the UK legal and political system is integrated into the EU system. And I keep saying this, in fact, I read a piece this morning Again, that seems to suggest that Brussels and the EU, including the EU Parliament, is somehow disjointed and disconnected from the people. Absolutely, the EU system is a complex legal structure. There's no question about that. But the fact remains that if you examine it and you examine it carefully, there are sufficient checks and balances uniquely in that system, as there are, in fact, and I would argue, better checks and balances, if you know how to use them and apply them. And the simple fact of the matter is, if we're in a rules-based legal system to which we subscribe, sooner or later, you've got to get the rule book out and have a look at it. 
you know? So this idea that somehow there's this bunch of big bad boogeymen over in Brussels or men and women in Brussels imposing something on the UK. The UK population is in this mess now because the UK population never paid attention from 1972 onwards to the way in which it was being governed and ruled. And the parliament, for its part, was happy to leave the government to go off to Brussels to negotiate the treaty amendments that happened in that interim period, including most particularly, for example, the 1992 Maastricht Treaty, which was the treaty that gave us the European Union, gave us the political union and all of these other developments against which the people are now railing. At a time in history when we have so many other complex, very difficult, if not insoluble problems to be facing, something that is so completely avoidable as Brexit and the mess through the sheer ignorance of so many people is just absolutely appalling and flabbergasting in my view. So in terms of your question about is this just because the Remainers are refusing to go quietly, no. I I mean, I think there's an element there, but you've got people who when they voted to, well, politicians who voted to leave didn't anticipate it would be on the basis that there would be no deal and there would be this this sort of Yeah, no edge. one was saying no deal. No, that's yeah. right. And even the people who voted to leave, I don't really think that they understood what that entailed. Uh, and so it goes back to your earlier question that the referendum question ought to have been framed much more carefully, much more clearly, and that in turn didn't happen because they didn't think it was going to get up. Yeah, no. that's true. I mean, that's that, right, yeah. It's yeah. just a calamity from beginning to end, really. Yes, and of course we haven't seen the end of it yet, so... No, we have not. What, what, we have what do we think is going to happen next? Uh, obviously the Supreme Court decision is a key thing. Supreme Court, that that's happening this week. Uh, tomorrow, I think they're hearing it. I don't know if the decision will come down. Parliament itself, of course, is sitting in abeyance. Yep, um, exactly. Not sitting, I guess. It's prorogued. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's unlikely they'll be called back earlier, but, you know, I could be wrong on that. Boris Johnson has positioned himself as the Hulk, uh, I notice. (laughs) Yes, indeed. They throw off the manacles of of the EU and, uh, yeah. What, what What do you think of this idea of him as the Hulk? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, is he good at problem solving? Um, I'm not a comics No, he's good person. at nut doing. That's what oh, the Hulk I did. See, I see. No, I, I, I confess I'm not really a, a comics Yeah, well, person. I think uh, by and large the idea was that when things didn't go the Hulk's way, when yeah, he, got he got sufficiently really angry, angry right? well, he expanded yeah. in he size himself, and threw right? off his yeah. manacles. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes. and created yeah. a lot of destruction. If you, I mean, we... I, I have to I'm, – I'm sorry. I'm a Marvel tragic. I have seen all of the Marvel movies, nearly all of the Marvel movies. And one thing about the Hulk is the path of destruction, the complete mess. He completely <laughs> destroys things. So it's perfect. He, yeah. Well, in a way it is. And I frankly see Prime Minister Johnson as one of those um, – dare I say it, small boys, who has temp, co- persistent temper tantrum the whole time, maybe too much red cordial, I don't know, but is just bent on destruction. Well, and he's already that. got the hair for it, actually, yeah. and now that I think about it, as Marina Hyde from The Guardian said, looks like he's cut it himself with a pair of bacon scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps he's picked the, the Hulk analogy because he he sees something in it that a lot of people who voted would resonate with a lot of people who voted I'm for sure Brexit because, you know, I think, yeah, you know, we were, you were talking a moment ago about the referendum and I think most people agree that it wasn't people who voted to leave, were, it, it wasn't just about Brexit, it was about their dissatisfaction Absolutely. with living in a globalised economy and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens um, when the UK does leave because people will still be living in a, glo- you know, people Absolutely. will still be living in a globalised economy and the, totally. the, 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 the vote that they they cast in in protest of that is actually not going. That's to a not, really good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, we're living yeah, in a globalised economy and getting a lot of the disadvantages and not yeah, some of the advantages yeah. that they're currently yeah, yeah. enjoying. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some disadvantages as well, particularly no. in the north. And I, I just want to be absolutely clear on this. Personally, I think the UK staying in the EU, keeping the EU stronger geopolitically, is a preferable outcome. That said... I completely recognise the right of a sovereign state to choose how it engages globally. What I what outrages me and incenses me is the um, complete disregard for the consequences of 
uh, the process which was undertaken in relation to the whole Brexit process. So, like you said, not crafting a careful question, not not accepting that there was there were going to be consequences, uh, playing down the Irish border issue in the way that Westminster has done. Um, the the disregard for the fear and the concern that people have had and the lies that were told at the referendum in the first place. The amount of money that was supposed to have been saved and poured back into the NHS, I mean, this is your point again about people's dissatisfaction. The amount of money that's been spent now on the whole Brexit process, and we're nowhere near clear of that, and the millions of dollars that are now being spent on the, you know, no deal Brexit, prepare yourself. All of that money is not going to the NHS either. So the lies that were being told, and these these are the things that get me so angry and outraged. And I'm tired of feeling like I'm some sort of a dinosaur because I happen to think that truth and accuracy and honesty matters. You know, I'm sick of looking at the faces of Nigel Farage. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And Boris Johnson and all of these people who stand up there with barefaced lies and take no consequence whatsoever for what they're delivering down on the people who are most vulnerable. One of the things that's that's um, really interesting to me, and this is, uh, I think, the politics of Brexit is a really good example of it, but it, you know you see it all over the world. Is the way the right has been positioning themselves as champions of the people, and the left increasingly becoming you know perceived as um, protectors of yeah, the elite. Yeah, p- p- no. protectors of the elite exactly. And it's it's really interesting what what you just said. I think if there had been a, I think you do have a you know obviously you do have a populist Labor leader, but because he's so, you know, he's got such a conflicted position on Brexit, he wasn't in a position to go out and make the argument that you just made about how it's a furphy, it's a bait and switch, it's actually, you know, people manipulating you and pulling the wool over your eyes, because I think there is a, there is, there was the opportunity. Yes. Yeah. um, To, to mount a not quite populist case, you know, case against, against leave, but, um, if nothing else, expose the the self interest and the manipulation and the. I, I was uh, I watched last week uh, that uh, program uh, Brexit and Uncivil War or the Uncivil War. Have you seen this with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Dominique Cummings and um, you know who was the really the architect yeah. of the Leave campaign, extraordinary figure who is now chief advisor to Boris Johnson, Johnson. of course. Um, but um, it uh, it really is a very disturbing. It's an extraordinary production. I, I, I guarantee, uh, you know, I recommend it strongly to uh, to all listeners um, because it does sort of explain what happened inside the two Leave and Remain campaigns, particularly the Leave campaign, and how they got it to work and how how they came to the slogan of taking back control. You know, the sort of the, yeah, as you say, may the sort of um, the nostalgia and populism of that position was very strong. It was all about sort of speaking to this idea that we used to have control and we no longer do, and this is your chance to take it back. Absolutely. Uh, it was a diffuse but powerful idea. Which speaks to the age cleavage, which was the primary cleavage driving this vote. You know, older people voted to leave and younger people voted to stay, and and here we are. You and know? not by a huge margin either, yeah. it must be said. Um Let's just take a quick break and when we come back, perhaps shift gears and talk about uh, some things that don't have to do with the Brexit shambles. Is there any such thing? (laughs) (laughs) All roads lead to Brexit, you think? I think so. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Uh, uh, Let's shift gears away from Brexit and talk about some things closer to home. 
Marie, we have a question from yes. one of our listeners. Yes, we have a question from, from Leon Hughes, and it's it's a blunt question. It's on the robo-debt, and he basically asks, why is the government not acting in good faith with the robo-debt? So do we agree with the assumption of the question in the first place? I think it's it's getting harder and harder to say that the government is acting in good faith on robo-debt. I think a couple of years ago, an argument could have been made that there were some you know, mistakes in the system and they were genuine mistakes. But I think when mis- when problems have been known um, to people for so long, there is a point at which you have to stop calling them mistakes. I think it's really uh, clear from the way the government is engaging with the legal challenges to robo-debt uh, by not contesting them and just choosing to wipe the debts whenever um, appeals escalate uh, because they don't want to establish, you know, problematic legal precedents for themselves. I think it's really clear that they are aware that there are problems with the system. I think the other part of that question, why, is a really interesting one because the money that's being saved is is fairly negligible. In an estimates hearing earlier uh, this year, um, the department uh, were asked what they're spending on robo-debt and how much they're recouping. And they said that to date, they'd spent about $400,000 on robo-debt and to date had recovered about uh, sorry, $400 million on robo-debt and to date had recovered about $500 million. So it's not it's not a boon for them in terms of, um, you know, money recovered. Uh, they've got we, so much good press out of it in the process. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because um, I did a bit of research for Anglicare Australia last year on public attitudes towards uh, welfare and social security. And uh, in... Social security systems that are highly targeted are much less popular. So when wealth, when benefits are universal, they're much more popular. And you see that in Australia, the most universal, the, the most universal aspects of the social security system, the pension and Medicare are the most popular aspects. The most targeted are the least popular and they're also the most likely to stagnate and have issues in, in how they're um, delivered. And you see that with. Centrelink and youth allowances is that, is that, alike. Is that, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt you yeah. there, but is that kind of surprising? Like, obviously, virtually everyone is a beneficiary of Medicare, so they're going to be a supporter of it, as distinct from, say, Newstart, where yeah. only five percent of the you know labour force is unemployed. No, it's I don't. Not, it's I don't. Not surprising. I don't think it's. I don't think it's. 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 Um, it's surprising. It does give you a. You wouldn't get away with treating people who use Medicare. Um, you know, you wouldn't. You, even though there is actually rampant Medicare fraud, by the way, it's it's much more widespread than <laughs> um, you know anything you see in Centrelink. Uh, you you wouldn't get away with this sort of really blunt, automated um, system just because there are so many people using it. Um, but there is another aspect to the research, which is that um, the more compliance measures. Uh, you you have in these sorts of systems, the more you kind of promote a, a mood of kind of gratitude and compliance and even people who comply end up being suspect in that sort of regime. Um, I don't think – I'm not suggesting that uh, people are sitting around in a room and deliberately crafting a strategy to make people, you know, um, compliant and grateful, uh, but I think that there's a there's a, an unconscious sort of moral dimension um, to, to the way we run our, our welfare system. And so, sometimes it bubbles up in more explicit ways, but usually I think it's a... Well, we're getting some interesting signals from the government now in, in this broader space, which mm. gives us a pretty clear picture of how the government view, you know, that, that, yeah. that sort of atmospheric kind of uh, aspect to the government's positioning. We know, for example, that uh, it's reviving its plans for the cashless welfare card to mm. expand these trials. Um, and we know that uh, it's also proposing this idea of... Mm drug testing, random drug testing of New Start and Youth Allowance part, uh, you know, recipients. Mm. Um, I guess taken together, it does have a rather kind of punitive yeah. feel about it all. And, and again, going back to the question of wh- why are they doing, why are they doing this? Um, when Christian Porter was the minister, he used to say that, you know, we have an obligation to the taxpayer to make the most of you know, to make sure we're recouping anything that's been wrongly paid and, you know, making sure that we're we're spending things properly. The the drug testing proposal, we don't actually know what it's going to cost because the government it's has said it's commercial in confidence. Uh, but every every country that's tried this in the world, it's been wildly expensive. In the US, um, this cost about 1,600 US dollars per person. Um, it's, you know, in Australia, we're proposing a trial of, of 5,000 people. I don't know if we're going to 
as part of the results of the trial, actually get any sense of what it costs to administer the system. But there were very few positive results and it was very expensive. It's it's not cost effective to do. So imagine having such a dim view of people on welfare that you would rather spend all of this money drug testing people instead of raising Newstart. Yeah, I mean, the mm-hmm. new start is abysmally low, as we all know, and mm-hmm. uh, the government has resisted any move of it. I mean, I think Labor's performance during the lead up to the election was pretty poor here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed that Scott Morrison was saying in the in the chamber last week, not a bad point actually, that Labor had proposed. I mean, you can argue about this this quantum, right? Because there is some argument over it. But his line was that Labor had proposed three hundred eighty seven billion dollars worth of extra taxes, and had still not found any money to increase new start. So, you know, let's not take them too seriously was his point. And uh, <clears throat> it's not without mm. virtue, that argument, oh, except I, that he's not doing anything either. Well, yeah, he's not doing anything either. I mean, I think this is quite a sort of disturbing um, sort of set of uh, principles in which to treat citizens, especially if, you know, you claim to be the party of, of liberalism, which is all about individual agency and unlocking individual potential and capacity. And this is, you know, the cashless welfare card, the drug testing of welfare recipients. Like this is actually treating people who are poor and people who are disadvantaged as somehow actually like less capable and less, uh, of, you know, um, less capable of having their own agency. Yeah, prima facie treating them as crooks. Yes, basically. And I I think this is actually, you know, this is something that we should actually really be talking about more explicitly because, um, you know, if we're – we're essentially treating people on welfare in a similar way that we treat people who we actually do believe to have lesser capacity, Mm. right? Mm. You know, know, I'm not saying they're exactly equivalent but, you know, like – criminals, people who are, you know, don't have all their mental faculties, people who are not adults. And I think this is actually really quite a disturbing trend, particularly when there doesn't seem to be that much evidence that this is actually efficacious. Like we're experimenting Mm. on our population, knowing that it's probably not going to work. And these 5,000 people, it'll be, uh, you know, It'll be interesting um, when stories start to come out about people's experiences of the system. I think the first thing is anyone who's had any um, interaction with Centrelink would question their capacity to run a system like this. Uh, like leaving aside robo-debt, you know, er- error rates these days in Centrelink, just rampant cuts and understaffing, you know, for years and years. Centrelink's... Centrelink systems are so Byzantine that even their own staff don't know how to navigate them. And, you know, we've seen in the Job Active Network, you know, a huge, over 150,000 people who have been breached have been breached through no fault of their own. It's just been system errors. So I think it'll be interesting to see what people's experiences are. The second thing is, who are the people who are going to be drug tested? The last time I was on this podcast, we had a conversation about who is your typical person on Newstart. And, uh, most people on Newstart are actually older people who've who've lost their jobs. So it's this huge misconception that it's, you know, it's young people who are out, you know, surfing or whatever. It's it's older people. And so, you know, uh, my mum has actually been on Newstart for several years. She lost her job um, when she was in her late 50s. And she's just been sort of stuck in this ridiculous cycle where um, she, you know, she got a job active provider. They told her straight out, straight out that, you know, there's there's, there's really no chance you're going to get work. Um, she did work for the Dole, volunteering, um, and then a couple of years ago um, the government removed – there was an exemption for people over the age of 55 that you wouldn't have to do work for the Dole if you volunteered a certain number of days a week and that's now been removed. So it's this – it's this, yes, yeah, I suppose assuming, assuming the worst of people. I'm cynical enough to think that yeah. – both political parties take this position because they see that there are votes in it. That there's some sort of elect, which is disappointing because it means that sufficient members of the electorate out there take the view that it's okay to bash, to mm. basically to bash the, the vulnerable and those who are disadvantaged. And I'm really disappointed about that because we should be looking, and again, I'm tired of feeling like a dinosaur in this regard, we should be looking at the collective. And if we've got a small minority who are, we should be helping them up for goodness sake. And if Mm -hmm. if the government 
If Parliament is particularly worried about rorting, about protecting the effectiveness of taxpayers' dollars, let's look at, for example, the multinationals that are not paying their fair share of tax when it comes to their obligations within Australia. Let's look, domestically and socially speaking, at the amount of money we should be putting into domestic violence, for example. I mean, at the minute, we've had, uh, I think it's 36 murders, 36 murders of women at the hands of family members. And we don't have yet 36 weeks in the year gone. So that's more than one woman a week. So that's just one example of where so if the government is serious and the parliament is serious about actually having some evidence-based genuine effectiveness of the taxpayers' dollars, then stop this sort of distraction and deflecting and Let's all blame the people on New Start or, you know, whatever it is. If we're talking about welfare, gee, let's see, look at where we've got the sort of middle-aged, middle-class churn of welfare. I'm not suggesting for a minute that, you know, we give it up necessarily, but let's be realistic about this. Now, if they thought that there were votes in universalising um, certain aspects of the welfare system, of social support and social security, we'd see that in the blinking of an eye. The fact that we're not tells us that the electorate, broadly speaking, is either completely disengaged to those parts that are engaged are in support of this kind of approach, or in fact, the electorate is more engaged and is in support of this, which I find equally distressing. But you do see, you have seen a real surge in support among, you know, people for for raising the rate of New Start. I think people have, uh, you know, we know from the research that we did last year, people have some really contradictory attitudes towards the wel- the, the welfare system. Yeah. So you, you can see this support for the tough compliance measures while also the support for raising, uh, for, for raising New Start. Um but one of the things that has been really interesting is as support for raising New Start has surged, and as these uh, horror stories about robo debt have been coming up, and not just in not just in the Guardian or whatever, but you know there are like three stories a week about robo debt on today on you know a current affair, mm-hmm. you know some oh, some some actually. flood affected community you know has had robo debt you know huge amounts of robo-debt levied on them or people who are bereaved getting robo-debts levied on them. So so not a place where you would expect to see sympathy for people who are um, on welfare. And and as we've seen the surge in those stories, you've seen um, the government move towards things like um, – I don't think the timing of this announcement about the welfare drug testing is a coincidence. No. You know, I think um, it's just a really cynical, a cynical move and a distraction after weeks of bad press about robo debt and surging support for raising the rate of news. I think it's really interesting, also, yeah. like if you look at the politics of it um, in, in a broader sense, that um, you know it's one of, uh, of three or four bills I can think of off the top of my head that it, that the government is bringing back that it has failed on in the past yeah. in terms of getting legislation mm-hmm. up. Um, and it's uh, you know it's seeking to re relitigate these issues through the parliament now, which perhaps Maria speaks to the fact that they were elected on the basis of a fairly generous tax cut and not being Labor. And they don't really have much of an agenda, so the agenda is actually rerunning what they did before, whether it be the big stick legislation on energy companies, which is we hear today is being brought back. There's this uh, drug testing of uh, welfare recipients. There's the um, uh, you know the cashless welfare card. There's the insuring integrity bill, which is the you know the you know. Which I don't think they want to talk about no. actually. Well, <laughs> I mean, Jackie Lambie doesn't want to talk about it, or maybe she does. Depends on what John Setka does. But it's yeah, you know, it's really interesting that the government's sort of constructing, at least in the short term, an agenda out of things that it was unable to get through the forty fifth parliament. Oh, uh, oh, yep, the union bill. Sorry, I confused that with the. Anti-Corruption Commission. Yeah. No, you're right. They do want to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, look, they are a third-term government. I mean, I know they like to pretend that they're new and they're a first-term government, but they're a third-term government. That's what third-term governments do. It also is, um, you know, I think they're pretty blunt about wanting to wedge labour because these issues are... Um, you know, divisive and and, cle- and a cleavage within that party, and they're absolutely in the business of um, making Labor feel uncomfortable. This is what Albanese refers to as legislation. Yeah, legislation. <laughs> sounds um, like something off a cartoon. It, it does, which is sort of what Parliament is like a lot of the time. Uh, <laughs> so, without wanting to be too to, to be too uh, too too rude to our uh, elected officials, just, just on Parliament though, yeah. and going and sort of touching back to this issue about medi about uh, fraud. Uh, you know, uh, in welfare fraud and so forth. I mean, having worked there for a long time, I, I would suspect 
that the percentage rate of fraud of travel expenses by MPs is higher hmm. than the fraud rate of, you know, people on the dole, you know, not, not sort of complying with the strictures of that system. And well, yet we don't see any clamour for yeah. change there. Even within the social security system, um, we know that there is rampant fraud in the Job Active Network, and there's been several reports about that over the last few years. Um, and th- these are people who are basically paid to breach people um, who are, you know, um, so it's unsurprising that there's fraud. Yeah, we it's know private that, providers who yes. are incentivised yeah, yeah. to basically keep people in this system because that's yeah. actually how they get And money. so if, if all of this was really about saving money for the taxpayer and respecting the taxpayer, you would see a crackdown in that space, but that's obviously not what this is about. No. I mean, I think it's really interesting that Jackie Lambie has basically sort of sort of said, like, well, I won't support this, you know, without some sort of actual, like, um, assistance for people who are actually have drug dependency kind of problems um, in a recognition of the fact that this this policy is wholly punitive, you know. And, I, I mean, again, like, again, if this was about, like, actually helping people or about efficiency, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't design systems in this way. You wouldn't design for-profit incentive structures that don't actually think about, you know, what's the actual outcome you want. You want people to have a job, right? Whereas the incentive structures for private providers are, are there to actually keep them in a sort of system that keeps them compliant and coming through the door so they can get, you know, a, 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 a payment for every time they see a person. Like, you know, the government believes in incentives, right? But I don't know if they're always thinking through the implications of the incentive structures they set up. Yeah, it's a good point. Now, just finally, um, the, the PM, Scott Morrison, is off at the end of this week to the US. He's going to have a, uh, a visit with Donald Trump. It's going to be a state visit, I think. Um, he's having a, you know, a state dinner. Uh, it's, he's only the second world leader to be given that honour by this president. Uh, the other one being Emmanuel Macron, who I think has established himself as quite the diplomat and, uh, you know, has, um, really kind of forged a, a bit of a unique bond, uh, with, with uh, Donald Trump. Scott Morrison also seems to have a very close relationship, but uh, I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly what Australia needs out of this, but presumably, uh, you know, we're looking for, um, using that access to somehow moderate the president's, um, behavior internationally. What do you think? I can't see Scott Morrison being able to moderate Donald Trump's behaviour in particular uh, or anybody being I mean, you're right, Macron is a remarkable diplomat and the way he handled the um, the events in Biarritz was astonishing, mm. uh, particularly given the fact that Trump seemed to manage quite well not being in the, being the centre of attention the whole time. Um, yeah, he did. That's right. He didn't sort know, of, uh, you know, there wasn't a sort of a. He tantrum didn't have the dummy and, spit yeah. tantrum, go off in a huff or anything, um, and particularly when Macron sort of, uh, uh, you know, had the, the 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 foreign minister for for Iran there on the side. Mm. Um, but in terms of this state visit, look, the reality is Australia is a middle power. We have this very challenging path to tread, which is on the one hand. Uh, you know, the, the, the ANZUS alliance and the relationship with the US and trying to tread that careful line between being our own state and representing that through our Prime Minister and not being obsequious and some sort of a lapdog. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether uh, Morrison manages to pull that off. We've got a very real dependency and relationship with China. We've got the US and China in a trade basically a trade war at the minute. Uh, I think the best that can be said is that Morrison and you know his wife, I think, is also going along. So they go along. They're polite. We hold our own. Um, lots of photo opportunities. Uh, who knows the purpose from Donald Trump's p- perspective as to why he's doing that because he'd be playing to his domestic constituency. Yeah. You know, and well, one of the fears, of course, is that um, you know he's pulling Australia close in order to effectively force us into you know, deciding more, more, more clearly in favour of the US over China, but that's but realistically I, not going to happen, though, because economically we are too dependent on China. Well, that's right, but I think uh, maybe Morrison does have the opportunity. We've seen a bit of a, you mentioned Beeritz. I mean, his his language, that is Morrison's language around that summit, the G seven summit, was quite interesting. Where he there was a bit of a shift where he 
um, started to kind of at least validate some of the sentiment in Trump's position, talked about the the need for a rules-based order, mm-hmm. but one that recognizes a new reality, so perhaps involves the construction of new rules. I thought actually it was quite a nuanced position yeah. from Morrison to take and perhaps an exercise in middle power diplomacy that um, uh, he, he might turn out to be quite good at. This, this is a pretty pivotal moment. Um, you know, given that trade war and given the the rise of China and so forth. So uh, perhaps that's what he's going to be trying to do, keep the relationship strong, uh, kind of sate Donald Trump's or America's, you know, umbrage at what's going on at the same time as gently guiding to the extent that we can uh, the parties towards the negotiation of perhaps some new rules yep. uh, that uh, that China can live with as well. It's certainly feasible, and and you're right. If if he can manage to continue along that line, um, there might be some interesting developments there. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. It depends on what happens once he's there in the full. What was described as the PT Barnum, that <laughs> apparently Donald Trump would be in full PT Barnum mode, and there'll be lots of lights and razzle dazzle and all the rest of it. So it depends on whether because. In Biarritz, Morrison wasn't the centre of attention. Mm. He was able to do that, but he was able to do that sort of in the the the, the to the side of the spotlight. Yeah. Here, he's going to be front and centre. So it'll be interesting to see how he then, you know, executes the task. Well, thank you very much for that, Anne McNaughton. Uh, thanks also to May Azizi and, of course, to Maria Taflaga. Um, you've been listening to Democracy Social, but, of course, you already know that. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can do so on Twitter by, via Apps Policy Forum or on the Facebook group as Policy Forum Pod and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. And uh, thanks for joining us. We'll look forward to talking to you next week when at least some of these issues may have moved on, but probably not in the case of Brexit or the US-China trade war, but we'll see what's happened. Thanks for joining us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.